Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on today's show on what is a warm spring morning here in the capital is Gautam Sariogi. Gautam is an experienced investor and is the CEO and owner of Makrish Limited, a private investment and advisory company. Makrish works in a diverse set of industries, including healthcare, alternative energy, mining and metals. Um, Gautam, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure welcoming you on, and it certainly is a lovely day for it. Um, I think we should begin uh, by addressing the elephant in the room here, and that's the fact that although over recent weeks we've started moving out of social restrictions here in the UK, we are still within the grip of the COVID-19 global pandemic somewhat, and we have been for the best part of 14 months in one way or another. So with that in mind, to what extent has all of this affected you and affected your businesses, would you say? So I think um, because I'm um, operating diverse uh, sectors, I mean, you know, I'm an investor and an operator of businesses. So I, I invest in businesses and then I operate them. Um, so uh, I would say the first part of the investing part, um, it's harder to actually conclude opportunities because it's very, very hard to actually do a full due diligence and feel comfortable about uh, concluding um transactions um, that way um, that is against our process so I think for me uh, it's been uh, slightly quieter uh, because uh, it's just because we can't get about and uh, sometimes we've also had opportunities abroad which uh, of course have been uh, absolutely no go because we just can't leave the country so the opportunities to invest in uh, have were substantially reduced. I think it, yeah, there, there was the activity, there were a deal flow, um, and I, I can see from uh, the numbers that you know they were there, but for, uh, say, a small investor, I think, uh, who would be more uh, hands-on or more looking for a, um, uh, a more uh, personal approach, it's very, very hard. Um, on the operating side, I guess I think probably the best business to concentrate would be my uh, interest in social um, uh, care, uh, health care. And mm-hmm. uh, so um, that has been extremely challenging um, through the whole uh, 18 um, months that we've been through right now. Um, up to now, I think, uh, well, not 18 months, but uh, about 15 months, uh, 16 months. So I think... Um, from a point of view of um, lack of guidance at the beginning, uh, through to understanding, well, we've just got to use our common sense. Mm. Uh, to uh, uh, I think um, to getting everybody on board and making sure everybody was safe. Um, you know, those were really, really challenging times. Um, I think we are over the worst of it. I think uh, the the overall strategy 
was correct, which was, um, you know, we have to have herd immunity, whether it's through vaccination or otherwise. Um, and uh, until then, we had to protect the NHS. Um, in Fundamentally, there's nothing wrong with that philosophy. Uh, I think, and that's being proven out, proved out where we are right now. Um, however, I think you know there were substantial errors made, and uh, with the benefit of hindsight, I think things could have been managed a lot, lot better. Um, personally, from a business point of view, I think we ended up using common sense, and uh, we, you know, we knew what was going on, we could see what's going on, and we reacted. Uh, often before government directives. So, for example, risk assessments for our, our staff and our clients. Um, we did that uh, almost three weeks before the government mandated it. Uh, so we'd already done that. And, you know, we'd already talked about uh, taking staff out of the front line who were particularly vulnerable. Um, so we'd done all that sort of thing. And I think that was the common sense approach. We saw, we saw that, you know, our clients were going to be uh, isolated, so we were issuing iPads or um, uh, get, letting them have access to iPads and things like that, um, which I think subsequently the NHS were looking at, but that came two or three months after we started it. We started looking at other services to provide clients uh, because we knew they were locked down, locked down. So, you know, there were lots and lots of things uh, that we did which were common sense as far as I was concerned. Uh, and we could have waited uh, for direction, but we just went ahead and did it. Mm. So I think uh, the one lesson I have um, in this kind of situation, uh, crisis situation, um, um, common sense. It's massive, isn't it? Just kind of following instinct in a way and having to think on your feet because maybe that directive from above is sort of a little bit lacking especially during a crisis such as this and we've seen so many business leaders across various sectors having to do that having to improvise and sort of go into that survival mode use their common sense to think about what to do next and i suppose yeah. that yeah i suppose a lot of it's come as well with managing the well-being of frontline stuff as well in the health and social care industry because as well as keeping the critically vulnerable stuff physically safe and taking them out of the firing line those that have been there throughout the pandemic have often had to spend time away from their family um, to avoid spreading COVID around. So I think mental well-being and issues with that among frontline care workers, that's certainly going to be a legacy of COVID, isn't it? Correct, yeah. I mean, the mental well-being of staff and frontline staff was a, a big concern to us. And we, yeah, again, you know, it's common sense. You know, we, we implemented uh, a system of uh, checks with them, those which we were, you know, were more vulnerable. We, uh, we were definitely far more sensitive to it. Um, there were certain things that, you know, with, with hindsight we could have done better, but I think, you know, we, we did beef up on that, not just for frontline staff, but for also clients, you know, instigating like weekly calls, uh, just check-up calls mm -hmm. and things like that. So I think the, the, the message will... I, I think there are a lot of people relying on people uh, to from, say, the government or public authorities to give guidance. And uh, actually, that was irrelevant to a degree because they were trying to figure it out themselves. They weren't experts in uh, any of this. Um, so, and they certainly didn't have the, uh, uh, the grasp of the knowledge required to 
look at our industry and look at our particular circumstances. Mm. Uh, so it was definitely one thing I've learned. Don't wait for anybody. Just use your common sense and we'll deal with it afterwards. You know, if we've done something wrong, uh, well, we'll deal with it. But uh, I think most sensible people would see that we've done a lot of, um, of the right things. I think you're very right when you say hindsight is a wonderful thing. And I think given hindsight, there's been so much criticism of leadership, um, not just, of course, um, from the government point of view, but also within the uh, the care industry. Um, but to a large degree, a lot of people on that front line have been sort of left hung out to dry at times and have been left to figure it out for themselves, like you say. Um, but with that in mind, that it is so easy to criticise leadership, despite this being such an unprecedented challenge for all of us that we've had to meet with some degree of improvisation. Do you think that maybe leadership by and large is appreciated as much as it maybe should be in the UK in all aspects? I think there were definitely mistakes made by, let's say, the government leadership. Um, I think there were definitely um, questions to be asked about how these mistakes were allowed to be followed through the whole organizations. I mean, you know, for example, in this sector, uh, you know, the government has obviously given dictate. Uh, the NHS has followed it. Um, all the authorities have followed it. There are a lot of people involved down that chain, and nobody whistleblowed. No, blew, nobody under, said anything, or it was certainly not conveyed back and sort of said, look, you know, you've got to stop this. Um, so, uh, and in social care, we could see what was happening. Uh, quite clearly that, you know, uh, uh, people were being thrown out of the hospitals and into the care homes and were um, without proper um, proper checks being undertaken. So we could see that, but then we were being pressurized so much that you're asking, well, who's who do you whistleblow to? Who do you tell? Um, so I think um, it's, it is difficult. Leadership is always difficult. Um, I think one of my, one of my, uh, I like to tell some of my managers, uh, you know, uh, one of my great mentors once said to me, um, you know, uh, you're never going to get a hundred percent decisions right in your life. And you should uh, be really, really happy with yourself if you get uh, seven out of 10 rights. Um, uh, in your life, you'll be fine. And um, I think that that's, that's the principle I, I go by with my leadership. It's, uh, I don't expect everybody to make the, the, the right decision every time. Mm. It's whether you can correct it um, and whether you can correct it quickly enough. Uh, that is a question for the government. Did they correct it quickly enough? I'm not sure they did. Um, and I, I do think that there is um, um, questions to be asked um, on that subject. Mm. And I appreciate, of course, that he was speaking about it in the context of making sure vaccine access um, is available to um, more developing countries. But I was reading an article in the Financial Times the other day um, from Sir Patrick Vallance, the government's chief scientific advisor, and he made very clear in that writing that we should be preparing for future pandemic threats like this one. Um, Given how far the care industry has come during the last 14 months, do you think it is ready for something like this again in future? I think so. I think we're much better prepared. Uh, and I think that's because um, we, um, we know what measures to take. Um, I think we feel a lot more confident uh, dealing with the situations now. Um, and uh, there's a better, much better guidance. There's much better uh, 
uh, risk assessments. Um, everybody's got business continuity plans now. You know, everybody's far, far better prepared now uh, for um, a, another pandemic. That's certainly encouraging to uh, to hear, and hopefully mm. the lessons from the last fourteen months can certainly be heeded. And with that sort of in mind, going forward into what hopefully will be the post-COVID world over the coming months, um, if we try and look ahead um, one year from now, where is it ideally that you'd like the health and social care business to be, and also maybe Macrish in general and its business interests as the economy hopefully opens up? So I think I mean. Uh... <laughs> I think uh, this is a tough question. I think there were inherent problems with um, social care even before the pandemic, and um, they've been well publicised and well uh, debated. I think it is um, the, the the pandemics did actually ha- help solve some of them or accelerate um, the move to certain solutions, um, and uh, unfortunately. Um, I have a fear that we're going to go back to missed opportunity of actually dealing with social care and how to create a fair and uh, equitable um, service which meets its fit for purpose. Um, and that that is going to be uh, the real challenge um, in the next year. And we don't really want to go back to the status quo um, of what it was before the pandemic. It would be better to be somewhere else. So I think that's that's one thing. And from the business point of view, um, you know, fortunately uh, our business was, you know, has weathered uh, any sort of downturn or whatever and we're still growing in the same sort of uh, rate as we were post pre-plan pandemic. So I don't see any real change there. I don't see any real change in our business growth plans. Um, but I do think fundamentally um, we need to see an a, a, uh, acceleration of uh, technology and marrying that with the within the service, and, um, the frontline service. I think that would be really, really good to see in a year's time. I think it's incredibly important that it doesn't get sort of left by the wayside. You're absolutely right, because the government did promise a root and branch review into social care in the pre-pandemic days, just after Boris Johnson was re-elected, of course. And um, this is hugely, hugely important, um, that that cannot be neglected. And it is something that the sector does need to see. You're absolutely right. Um, Hopefully, over the uh, the next month, few months, as the picture starts to become clearer, maybe we can even have you back on the show, Gautam, just to see if those changes that we do need to see in the industry are starting to be made because it's been a most insightful experience welcoming you onto the show today i must say absolutely be delighted to discuss it it is a very important topic as you say um so yes we do need some some uh debate some proper debate about it now uh now that we're over perhaps over the worst of it um and it was kind of disappointing to see that uh it was not mentioned uh, on the agenda um, for this year, um, but it has to come. It does. It certainly does. Um, thank you in the meantime, Gautam, for joining us on the show today. It's been wonderful having you. And until next time, please do take care and stay safe with all still going on in the world because we're not quite out of the woods with this yet. No, you too. Thank you.
It was a pleasure to welcome Makrish Limited's Gautam Sariogi onto the programme today. Uh, coming up next on the show, um, we'll be joined by incumbent Leaders Council Chairman and former Education Secretary Lord David Blunkett, who will be offering his take on the occurrences of the last 14 months and his hopes for the future. That will be coming up on the show next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced both between services and product productivity and, and uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common 
a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, we'll be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself, and there's been ups and downs, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, uh, but also I think in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert, mm -hmm. but actually I think there's a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and um, 
and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of... um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. 
So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we we saw SARS and other things emerging. I I think people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in you deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh- cu- um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've 
put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. 
and those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the Hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the, uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced 
shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition, more importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakira Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority in historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him, which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, 
the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, thank really you for coming on the uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.